0: I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today, our main event conversation, Gorillas' Lives Matter, Harambee and the public shaming of a black family. Hot topic one, let's talk about S.E.X., Global sex education. To be precise, Hot Topic 2 public defender cuffed and in contempt by judge for doing her job. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Christina Greer and Asha Bandele. Asha Bandele is an award winning journalist, an author, editor, and activist. Usher is Director of Communications for National Cares and Director of the Advocacy Grants Program for Drug Policy Alliance. Dr. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University and author of the critically acclaimed book, Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thanks, Esther.
1: Thanks, Esther. It's good to be here.
0: Our main event conversation, Gorillas, Lives Matter, Harambee, and the Public Shaming of a Black Family. A little black boy and his mother go to Cincinnati Zoo on a Saturday. The four-year-old wants to take a closer look at the gorilla enclave. He wants to go in, and he's just four years old. His mama tells him no. The next thing, the little one has dropped 15 feet into the moat of the gorilla enclave where Harambe, a 400-pound rare wild silverback gorilla, is kept. The little boy is in the enclave for 10 whole minutes. He's being dragged around, first in the moat and then the enclave, his head banging on concrete. He sustains serious injuries and is rushed to hospital. Cincinnati Zoo took the decision to put the gorilla down to kill him and save the little boy's life. All of that happened on a Saturday in May. The zoo director's decision sparked anger, condemnation, criticism and an actual campaign – The story went global. The anger, condemnation, and critique had two directions. First, the zoo, for putting down the silverback gorilla, a rare species. A Facebook campaign called Justice for Harambe was started and has collected more than 1,000 signatures. The Cincinnati Zoo director held a press conference to explain and defend his decision as protests were held and the campaign grew.
2: child was being dragged around. His head was banging on concrete. This was not a gentle thing. The child was at risk. We we're very fortunate that he's okay. So, when it was determined that the child was being injured—not potentially injured, but was being injured—both down in the moat and then up on the ground—that we had to make a decision to shoot him, but we did.
0: The Cincinnati Zoo director explained this was unprecedented action and an emotional time for the zoo workers.
2: A very emotional time at the Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, it's unprecedented. We have never had to. Kill a dangerous animal in the middle of an emergency situation. The zoo's been here 143 years, so that's saying a lot. There were hugs. The people that knew Harambe the best, his keepers, shared a lot of stories about him. But everybody at the zoo feels the loss. There's no doubt about it.
0: The second focus for the anger was directed squarely at the black family, the black mother and the black father. The mother was lectured, hectored, shamed, condemned, accused. There was even speculation that the mother should be charged with neglect. And then the black father was targeted. Journalist Laura Collins wrote a piece via Cincinnati for the online newspaper The Daily Mail, in which she detailed the little boy's father's entire criminal history. That story has now been shared 26,000 times on Facebook. The world learned their names. Daddy, Dion Dickerson. Mother, Michelle Clegg. From social media to some mainstream media, the tone of the coverage was accusatory, all empathy reserved for a primate animal. Few stories on the shock, hurt and horror of a mother watching her baby, breath held, totally vulnerable, as a 400-pound gorilla drags him around first the moat and then the enclave, his head hitting and bouncing off concrete like a rag doll. Journalist Sean King reported in the New York Daily News, there have been a series of horrifying incidents at zoos involving children and families. Neither they nor their parents were named, criminalized, or shamed in the way that we've seen with this black family. King gives multiple examples. 2015, a child fell into a cheetah exhibit at Cleveland Zoo. Neither child nor parents named. Again, 2015, a child scales a fence at Kansas Zoo and Is mauled by a leopard. No details of her parents' criminal history are revealed. In 2014, two jaguars mauled. In 2014, two jaguars mauled a toddler who fell into the jaguar exhibit of the Little Rock Zoo. The child's identity, the identity of his parents, and their criminal history, never mentioned. Fifteen years ago, a child fell into another gorilla exhibit and was rescued. The criminal history of the parents never mentioned. At the Pittsburgh Zoo, a child lunged from his mother's arms into the African spotted dog exhibit and was mauled to death. The zoo actually settled a wrongful death suit with that family. A tiger at the San Francisco Zoo mauled a 17-year-old boy to death. A drunk family member was witnessed taunting the tiger beforehand. The zoo settled with that family. Again, not a single story was written on the criminal history of anybody in that young man's family. As Sean King asks, quote, why in the world is the criminal history of this young boy's father in Cincinnati being spread all over the world? Unquote. There are other questions. Why is a black mother being lectured, shamed, accused of being a bad parent? Why is there speculation that charges should be brought for neglect? Why has Harambe, a 400-pound primate, been humanized and a black family, a mother and father, demonized? Let's talk. Guerrillas' Lives Matter, Harambe and the Shaming of a Black Family. Asha Bendele, let me start with you.
1: It's interesting that we're having this discussion when at the same time in the United States, we are watching a re revisioning of, of Roots. And in the episode that aired last night, the last thing we saw was really um, the child of Kunta Quinte and Bell being snatched away and taken by other slave, slave owners to a whole other plantation states away. And, you know, I raise that to say that we should be reminded that there's never been a time in the history of the United States that we were considered people who had a right to our children, that we knew what to do with our children. In many ways, we've always been criminalized. and always, There's always been this air of we didn't have the ability to care for them. And so, you know, I think that we live within that circumstance, but I think that it's also important to say that we're having this discussion about a zoo in the very same state where Tamir Rice was shot. Tamir Rice, 12 years old, shot in one to two seconds by a police officer, and we could say that the gorilla got 10 full minutes more than Tamir Rice's life got consideration. And so for all of these people who are, you know, having fits and starts about the death of a gorilla, which I would like to have not have seen, but I think you have to make the choice between the life of the gorilla and the life of a child, and you also have to look at what were the safety precautions that a child could even get in there and worm their way into a gorilla's uh, enclosure, that's on the zoo, right, is that, you know, that here this this gorilla got ten minutes, ten minutes for people to do something, Tamir Rice got one to two seconds, where are all those folks who didn't say anything about Tamir Rice, who sided with the police, who gave that 12-year-old boy one to two seconds of, of life to live, you know, before he shot him to death.
0: Hmm. Dr. Christina Greer.
1: I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, when I
3: heard the story and I heard the location, because obviously geography always matters, that's immediately, the, the my first thought was Tamir Rice. Um, this is the same city where we have seen a complete and blatant disregard for black life. Um, and so I find that so many people who are outraged about what happened to a gorilla, which Yes, on the one hand, you know, I'm sure we all love animals and love God's creatures. No, it's, it's senseless that we have animals caged up in these small areas and, and he lost his life. But it's a child. I think it's really fascinating, though, because someone wrote on Twitter, you know, we know nothing about Dylan Roof's parents. And this young child, it's an unfortunate incident, it is on the zoo for their lack of safety precautions, but immediately it's the shaming of black parents, it's, you know, this constant finger-wagging and this paternalistic attitude in this country that black people don't know how to govern themselves, and they surely don't know how to govern their own children. And. We know nothing about all of the families of all these other tragedies that have happened at zoos where children have been mauled by animals um, and either lost their lives or not. And so I think it is so disingenuous for these thousands and thousands of people to care so much more about the life of a gorilla, and they have said nothing about the countless numbers of children who have been murdered um, by the state.
0: It's interesting to me because you both mentioned... Tamir Rice and the, the nature of the approach and the idea that for me, even listening to the Cincinnati Zoo director, you know, they watched for 10 minutes before they took any action. And the zoo director said, we waited not for the potential of injury, but when he was actually being injured. So this child is being thrown around by a 400 pound gorilla, his head banging on concrete before the decision is finally taken to actually um, do something. And then they say, well, we didn't want to tranquilize the um, gorilla because it would have agitated him more. But there was still a wait. Well, they're essentially waiting, watching a baby with a killer <laughs> animal and doing nothing. Um, and so I'm really, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be shocked at the lack of empathy and the absolute unwillingness to recognize the humanity of. Um, black people and black children in particular, and therefore to have you know, empathy with the terror and fear of the, um, the child and a mother watching helplessly as her child is, is just being thrown around like a rag doll and not knowing if they're going to come out alive. And the absolute focus on the rights of a gorilla. But then I'm equally struck that a gorilla is, has been used, the image of a, of a monkey has been used to ridicule and disrespect Black people. And now we're watching um, Harambe stories, a campaign, RIP Harambe calls for a family to actually be charged with the neglect, even as you have histories that tell um, other stories. And as, as you said, Christina, we know nothing about Dylan Roof's family. And he actually committed a mass murder, like it was an actual fact. And the, um, the terrible one year anniversary of what he did is this month. And so it's extraordinary to me um, watching a story unfold and the lecturing, which comes not just, you know, I'm seeing it from um, elements of the communities of color, as well as the larger, um, broader community, both in media, on social media, through the campaigns. Uh, and it's, it's extraordinary and painful. And, you know, the, the, the statement that the mother makes that their child is just fine, and that's almost dismissed as the calls for um, Harambe and and a, a rethink of the decision get louder and louder and louder?
3: Well, I think also, Esther, what it reminded me of was that UVA story, or uh, the, the study that came out of the University of Virginia a few weeks ago where medical students firmly believe that black people feel less pain. And, I mean, that to me uh, is indicative of why so many zoo officials could sit there and see not just the physical pain of the child, but the anguish of the mother and realize, well, we need to wait and sort of assess the situation. So I, I, I think it's a much deeper story, especially because this is not the first child who has ever fallen into a pit with, with zoo animals as sean king detailed in the daily news there are countless stories of white children who have done this um and we've never seen the types of attacks and the research done on their families to discredit them so it's this constant assault on the character of black people um no matter what our circumstances and by all accounts and it's buried in the story but the young child's father has a, a checkered past but his present The past, say, 10 years, he's done nothing but be an upstanding citizen and work with his family. I mean, they have no negative stories about anything that he's done recently, especially since the child's been born. So why is it necessary to dig up things from when he was, you know, sort of possibly a young a younger man that just, you know, did not have the same level of focus that he clearly has now. So they've they've gone through this family's social media profile to try and create this narrative and paint this picture of them being such an irresponsible family. But we never see this done with other families. We've got an example of Casey Anthony who literally has said that she's killed her child and no one really thinks about it, and she's walking free on the streets today. So, I mean, it's just the double standards to me are so blatant and so obvious it's almost frightening and i mean it is frightening but it's just it's it's truly unbelievable
1: I couldn't agree with you more, Chrissy. And you know what else I think is, like, what, here's the certain things that we don't know. Like, just as a reporter myself, we don't know what the quality of that zoo was. I still don't know that. I still don't know where there was a fissure in the in the uh, gorilla enclosure that a child could even get in there, right? We've made assumptions about the parent, but we've not made any assumptions about the zoo, about the staff, about any of the things that would even allow a young person to get in there. And, to Chris, Christina, your point about, you know, the people that we don't talk about, I can think about, the number of of adult idiot white people who jump willingly mm-hmm. into into these enclosures and um are, and the animal is killed and we don't hear a demonization of them but you know what makes me even um almost more angry, is that it's it's the doublespeak of America, right? Because at the same time that we are seeing across the nation, right and left sides of the aisle, talking about that we're living in in an untenable situation where mass incarceration has taken over, it's been the policy of the day, the biggest policy, and probably where the most money is spent beyond the military, that it's really insane, and we know that in some places one in two black men will get a criminal charge, then how can you, if you know that that's a policy position, then how can you hold somebody this personally responsible we don't even know what his criminal record was mm-hmm. we don't if he could have been walking down a corner smoking a joint we don't know that somebody telling me that somebody has a criminal record does, tells me probably more about america than it does about the person himself we don't know any of those circumstances what we do know is that incarceration and criminalization has been an american policy it's not been a personal failure at this juncture of any one person and so to see that at the same time that we're supposedly critiquing this policy Is even crazy to me. Well, you know, I mean, and I know this is a much more minor point,
3: Esther and Asha, but one of the first things I also thought about when this story um, came to our attention was in New York, if you want to take your family of four to the zoo, it's going to cost you over $100. And so I was also thinking either this family you know, like, first of all, it's the zoo. This is an activity where you take children. I was like, so the, the assault on this mother's character, that she's a bad person, I was like, she is actually spending real money. I mean, an adult ticket at the zoo, the Cincinnati Zoo, if you purchase it at the gate, is $27. For a child, it's $22. So that also means that whether she got free tickets or not. If she got free tickets, that I means she cares to take her children out on a, a holiday weekend and actually have them have experiences. And if she didn't get free tickets, that means she is actually going into her pocket and spending copious amounts of money. I have nieces. I've taken them to the zoo and I go back and tell my sister, like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that it was this expensive to take your children out just to do something that you know thousands and thousands of American children do every single day. And so I think you know no one's really thinking about them as a family they're constantly separating them and and As Asha said, buying into this kind of prison narrative that like the dad's a 'er ne'er-do-well, the mother's clearly neglectful and you just have these wild children a la Jerry Maguire where the black kid's running around and the white kid's reading a book. That's the narrative that they're perpetuating and it's so frustrating because there are so many faults along the way of completely other systems that have nothing to do with this family.
0: And to to pick up that point, Christina, about they paid money to get into the zoo, the fact that a four-year-old child could even get into the moat means that arguably the zoo, the zoo should be looking at um, being sued um, because of the child's sustained injuries as a result of being able to get past whatever the security was supposed to be and fall even those 15 feet And so when you look at the history, the very important history that Sean King details in the Daily News, it talks about families, zoos having to settle for um, um, suits as a result of um, people being hurt as a result result of those animals. So I look at two things. One, the deflection from the zoo's responsibility in terms of security, given that you are talking about wild animals who, who will kill. Um, on the one hand. And then the second is the length of time they waited, even before they took any action. And then the third thing is the actual injuries the child sustained, because they were head injuries, they were being banged on concrete. And so they're saying, yes, no serious injuries were sustained. But you know, with a head injury, it's the long term potential of what's happened to a bang on the head. It's not necessarily that they're okay now. What might the long term impact or effect could be? And then all this talk about, you know, I've seen people posting, I've taken my kids to the zoo 20 times, nothing's ever happened, blah, blah, blah. The the nature of um, unwillingness to recognize the institution for its failure to um, erect adequate security to make a child safe, which should be the narrative. Even the, the zoo director who did this long speech about the stories of Harambe, there's a lot of tears there were a lot of hugs. Um, people shared stories. I mean, I was, it was extraordinary, and it is extraordinary to me. So I think there's, the issue goes all the way around in all these different, different ways. And one of the things that's important to me is to say, shift the narrative squarely back to where it's supposed to be. If, as Usher points out, if you can't wait two seconds to kill a 12-year-old boy playing with um, a toy gun, you can wait 10 minutes and watch a gorilla maul a child with who knows what kind of long term damage. And then you have a Republican nominee talking about making America quote unquote great again. Like, what does that really mean about the circumstances in which folks are living in the United States? Like, what does that really mean? So, closing thoughts um, from you, Christina, first, and then from you, Asha.
3: Well, I think by making America great again, I mean, there's no subtext to it beyond make America white again. You know, I mean, this is, we're seeing the last gasp of white supremacy where they're going all out because this is a fearful time for them. You know, this is, these are people who are angry to even see black families at the zoo in their, in their space, right? We're in their, their worlds now, Um, not just black people, but immigrants um, and the sheer numbers of these individuals. And so, I mean, this is, this is all connected in so many ways, as Asha was saying about sort of. How the police target our communities, how you know we are not expected to know how to govern our own children, and then also this it 's another uh, layer to this analysis, which is you know this is also about online bullying culture where You know, so many of these people who were writing in things about this mother and how horrible she is, they're the same ones who were saying online bullying culture for my kids is so terrible and we need to really do something, and then they turn around and do it themselves. And so I think that there's this overgrown hypocrisy in this country that has so much to do with race and racism. And we're in a moment right now where so many people have no idea how to discuss it. Black folks know how to discuss it because we've, we've been... Dealing with this for generations and centuries, but so many people are just now starting to see how some of the puzzle pieces fit together, but the the whole puzzle is not yet laid out and I think unfortunately we're in a moment right now politically where so many individuals um, welcome this type of ire. Um, And they feel as though these circumstances really point to sort of proving their point without ever looking in recent history to see how um, black lives are just not ever treated the same, no matter children, women, men, families. It doesn't matter inside the office, inside the zoo, inside their own homes or on their own porches, just as Skip Gates. um, It's never going to be equal.
1: I mean, I think that we know certainly that Make America – great again really means make America white again which is weird to say because America never was white mm-hmm. uh, you know that that's just not true and and so what they're really talking about is make make basically dumb white people, eat nasty white people run America again, that's really what they're saying but I think that I really um, uh, appreciate your point too Chrissy about the online bullying nature and it's sort of this pile on mentality because let me propose a different situation, if that baby had been taken out of that enclosure with the gorilla and the mother had beat him publicly in some way for us all to see, you better trust and believe there would have been a whole bunch of people on there. So imagine she gave that baby what he deserved. Because we would have appreciated that. We would have said, that's okay. That's how you're supposed to treat black children. And so at the core of this is that there's no value that's placed on black children's lives. He he could have been killed by that gorilla while they sat around and tried to figure out what to do. Or they they certainly can shoot down a 12-year-old in one to two seconds when they knew that it was a toy gun or most likely a toy gun. And so we know that it's about black children's lives not mattering. And I think that the answer for us is that we've got to keep the pressure on. We've got to keep interrupting... Um, cars on highways. We've got to keep protesting. We've got to keep organizing because if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it for us.
4: It's time to get up to change the world because 'cause I'm better. We're gonna expose the wrong that's been going on. There's people dying in the streets still in every city. Lots of kids they be ill. I live in Brooklyn, got boys all over. Been around the world and you know that I know the good, the bad, the young, the mad. The good,
2: the bad, the young, the out. L'homme qui porte le microphone, se nomme Solar, maître de la rime la accompagné de comparses de star À Paris, en France, comme dans la Rome antique. Limit the met, mathematician, Santacus, limit the met, key millimetre, a premier met, jet l'intellect a des kilometres. It's your town, guru. Crazy madness, it's all I
4: see out my window. It doesn't matter who's the president, yo. I hate to tell ya, but slavery is still in effect. Haven't you checked? Us black folks, we ain't free yet. I make a bet, if we don't let the truth out, huh, evil will win without a doubt. And it's the good, the bad, the
2: mien, the mall. The good, the bad, Le mien, le mal. C'est le monde des affaires, au P.A. sur la misère, le réel menace, tralalala l'air. L'air de rien, je doute de l'existence des dieux, de l'existence du mieux. Dans un lieu plus pieux, alors je prends de l'avance en prenant du Car du recul, c'est de l'élan. I come in peace, but suckers, I was trying to fight So I gotta let him know, gotta
4: let him know This ain't no game punk, cause you could wind up dead With bullets to the head from the posse's
5: left I'm like your mentor, and this is for your benefit So kill the noise, cause the rude boys ain't
4: having it The good, the bad, the
2: bad The good, the bad The good, Le Mal yeah. En prophète de la fête Je suis contre ceux qui fêtent La défaite de la fête Alors fête, attention Cette recette intercepte de la tête Trouble fête Et le son Domine la situation Le bien et le mal Situation critique Problème politique et technique Ok man, tout s'explique Yeah My
4: man MC Solar in the house I cool. 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 know that's the guru You know that You know that the whole posse: Jimmy James Mikey yeah. Mushmoo Lucy Blackjack Blackjack, Blackjack baby the rap mc seek the metal like baby planet mars strike Regis, just won't democrat team and the whole time you you know what i'm saying taking those shorts in '93. keep you the good and the bad in my mind
5: It's
0: conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all women of colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Arma. Our contributors this week, Dr. Christina Greer and Asha Bendele. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FMs across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for the first of our hot topics. Let's talk about S-E-X. Sex. Come on. Let's talk about
5: sex, baby.
0: Global sex education, to be precise, from California in the United States to Warwick in England to India to Nicaragua in Latin America, sex education is changing, and some of those changes are creating controversy, comfort, but a lot of conversation. Let's start with California. They are the first state in America to introduce consent classes for high school students. Governor Jerry Brown signed the bill in October 2015. From America to England, when Warwick University introduced consent workshops on campus, it sparked an op-ed from one offended young white male student. George Lawler is a politics and sociology student at Warwick. He wrote in a blog that, quote, most people don't have to be taught not to be a rapist, unquote. Here he is talking with the BBC about his objections to consent classes.
2: I thought it was quite insulting um, to be invited to a class that... Um, implies, I mean, the very nature of it implies that I don't know how to treat other people. I don't know how, at, at this age, 19, that I don't know not to rape people.
0: That in turn sparked a national conversation in England about where, when, and at what stage consent should be taught. Questions were raised Are classes needed? Who should be taught? Should it be taught at university? What do consent classes say about those who attend? From England to India, the YP Foundation is teaching consent classes through grassroots project work with girls. They have created 14 classes for 12 to 20-year-olds, which include role-play, art and games. From Asia to Latin America, in Nicaragua, they are tackling the macho notions of masculinity and how they help fuel violence against girls and women. There are high rates of sexual violence against girls under 14, resulting in pregnancy. This project works with tackling and grappling the machismo attitudes boys develop and learn from men and society. Plan International is educating young men with what they call a Champions of Change program. It works with 15- to 19-year-old boys in Nicaraguan schools for 18 months and encourages empathy and respect towards girls. From Asia to Europe, in Romania, programs are tackling the sexual abuse of those with learning difficulties via the Keep Me Safe program. From Europe to the Middle East, where programs to talk about sex education um, have been created where previously there was silence. And from the Middle East to Nigeria, where a project called My Question allows young Nigerians to have their questions about sex and sexuality answered. Let's talk global sex education, the significance of consent classes, grassroots projects and engaging boys and girls as integral to changing how we think and deal with sex. Dr. Christina Greer. Let me start with you.
3: Well, I think we have to do something because whatever we're doing right now is not working. And unfortunately, if you look in America, in schools all across the country, abstinence only is still being taught. And so we're unfortunately breeding a whole new generation of girls and boys who have no idea, um, not just about sex and uh, sexually transmitted diseases, but also the processes leading up to intimate encounters, Um, and I think that, you know, we're from this Puritan society where so many of our legislators want to pretend that sex is a horrible thing um, and that no one should be discussing it or learning about it, um, and it should be wrapped in this cloak of shame, and unfortunately, that is what breeds Sexual violence, that's what breeds further ignorance and lack of education, and we have sort of some really subsequent ills that plague lots of societies the difference is some people have money to deal with and cover up what's been going on in their own communities and others unfortunately have to live with some of the negative repercussions of not knowing about sexually transmitted diseases um, how you can get pregnant um, and also the sexual violence that comes along with the process of being intimate Asha Bandela your thoughts
1: I mean, I think that the, the question of consent comes down to me, you know, for something like this, really about sex education. There's a couple of things we know. First, we know that when young people are presented with proper education and choices, they do so much better when it comes to sex. They, they get pregnant less often. They don't present with um, STDs. All of those things are true. But when it comes to the question of consent, there's other data that we know. We know that roughly 70% of girls will report that they've been date-raped in their life, but only 30% of boys... Boys will report that they've actually done the date raping, which tells me that there's a huge um, amount of education that we need to do to teach boys about the behavior that they're, um, that they're uh, engaging in when it comes to young women or, you know, in the, in the case of, of non-heterosexual sort of cis relationships, boys and boys, girls and girls. That there's, there's a huge thing that we need to look at here because there obviously is a, um, I don't want to say... There's a gap in what we understand to be consent. And, you know, when I think about um, the states that have the worst abstinent laws in the United States, the states that are the most regressive and repressive when it comes to this, these are also the states that have the worst indicators in every other level, whether it comes to STDs or or unplanned too early pregnancy or any of the other statistics around rape and everything else. And so it just makes no sense that we're doing this unless we're saying we're willing to throw away our children. I, for one, especially as a parent of a 16-year-old, and not willing to do that I really strongly have educated my daughter around sex education because what I know is true is that she is most likely 99% of the uh, chance going to be a sexual being in the very near future and I want her to walk into that relationship with all the information that she needs to be a strong, healthy positive engager and to be sex positive when she is engaging with whoever she chooses to love in an intimate way and that's the hope that I wish we would have for all of our children, that they want us, we want them to be um, as uh, strong in their intimate relationships as they are in any job that they do, as they are when they get behind the wheel of a car, as they are in any behavior they engage in. They should have all the information necessary to come out the other side safe, healthy, and whole. That's what I'm teaching my daughter, and if we really loved our children, that's what we teach all of them.
0: I think it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting because, the reaction from that university student in Warwick to consent classes reminds me of the um, the elements of toxic masculinity that mean any type of education around sex somehow makes some suggestion to your quote-unquote manhood. And so... Um, the idea that you learn about your body, and not just that you learn about consent and, 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 and sex and pregnancy and STI, but also that you learn about the notion of pleasure, the lo- the notion of ownership of your body, and that your body is part of what God intended for your body, was to experience particular things, was to experience pleasure. And so better understanding what um, that means is, is really good right across the board and so i'm really encouraged to hear about all these different types of programs from asia and latin america and the middle east and in west africa that are actually looking at more proactive ways to engage young people on an issue that is still so stigmatized and um, shamed and it's so tied to morality and respectability and decency and those kinds of ties are deadly they are literally killing um, um, girls and boys in a range of ways through sexual trauma and the legacy um, um, of that and then the relationship that young boys create and have towards their sense of selves and their masculinity. So making the kind of change and engaging the kinds of programs that make all girls and boys more educated can can never not be um, a good thing. It can never not be a good thing. And then especially in a, in a, in a moment where we're watching the rise and rise of The terrifying Donald Trump and the Republican, really a war on desecrating, a a war on desecrating the kinds of education and sexual health education that um, women have and women and men need. And so I always look at it as a societal issue, as one that should be taught in both um, uh, in partnership and community and individually. And there's no such thing as too much education, not when it comes to your body and the idea of sex and sexual pleasure. That's really um, important.
1: Yeah, I love what you said here. And, you know, as you said, um, Esther, this is about in places like India where rape crisis is at, you know, huge levels in South Africa where you have HIV infection at unbelievable levels and rape at unbelievable levels. We know that this is about our lives. The young man in Warwick uh, in England who, you know, opposed the consent classes was just another example of vulgar individualism. How dare you tell me what I need to know? And so he's going to assume the little thing about him is bigger than what we see across even England and across Europe, because there's nowhere where you go where women seem to get out of uh, this life without experiencing some kind of sexual violation. But I've never met a woman who. Has not had some form of sexual violation there's there's trauma at different levels you know it's a spectrum that we're working on but I have never met one woman who has not had some kind of violation and that alone should tell us that we need these kinds of consent classes
3: I think what's also really sad is that so many women don't know that they have actually experienced something that was inappropriate. They know it felt wrong, but they never had the words for it. And so, you know, as I've talked to so many of my friends over the years, they brushed it aside, and it's not until they're adults where they realize that they were in a situation that was highly inappropriate and it was not a consensual um, circumstance, but they were taught um, either implicitly or explicitly to just be a good person and not cause too much trouble and, you know, things happen and just move on. Um, and so even giving people the language from a young, age to recognize uh, when they need to speak up is really, really necessary.
0: And I also think about um, the idea that you you don't engage your body as a point and an access of trauma, that the power of um, A fresh approach to global sex education. Even the idea of consent is that there is a beauty in permission. There's a beauty in that engagement. That that process is a beautiful part of recognizing that uh, recognizing all the different things that your body can do and be. And part of what you're living with is a legacy where, really, for people of color, consent was a myth. We're talking about the. Uh, legacy of the history of the enslaved, especially as you're thinking about a re-watching of Roots. Even the idea of consent was literally rubbished and silenced when your body became property. And so it actually becomes a really integral part of what it means to create um, a sex education and to reimagine young girls and and women's bodies, but also for men to reimagine masculinity and the idea of that there is a power in seeking permission. It's not a powerlessness, it's a power. And part of a toxic masculinity is about the denial of permission, that you take what you want, that there's an aggression and there's a respect that comes with that aggression. And the opposite is true when it comes to um, global sex and global sex education. So this, for me, is it's, it's an exciting move, an exciting move. Yo, I
5: don't think we should talk about oh, this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? Oh, but that's a part of life, okay? <laughs> Search and kill everyone inside. You turn on the telly, and every other story is telling you somebody died. My sister killed a baby because she couldn't afford to feed it, and it was sending people to the moon. In September, my cousin tried Reva for the very first time. Now he's doing horse, it's June.
0: public defender, silenced, cuffed, held in contempt. On May 23rd, Zora Baktari, a public defender, was handcuffed, placed on a bench with defendants, and told she needed to learn a lesson about courtroom etiquette by a judge. Zora Bakhtari has been a deputy public defender for three years, and she was making her argument to keep her client, who had violated probation on petty larceny charges, out of jail. When the judge told her to, quote, be quiet, unquote, it was as Bactari tried to interject that the judge took what was described as, quote, unprecedented action, unquote. Las Vegas Justice of the Peace, Conrad Hafen, explained and defended his action, saying that there needed to be, quote, proper decorum by attorneys, unquote, as court transcripts revealed he repeatedly silenced her. The judge went on to say, and I quote, There's been a progression of steps in the courtroom, where I've tried to let her know it's not proper decorum for her to continue to talk over me or interrupt me after she's already made her argument. Once an argument is made, then you have to allow the judge to respond. So there's a clear record, and you shouldn't be interrupting the judge as the judge is making a ruling. I've been trying to work with her, and today it just spilled over to where I thought, well, clearly she's not understanding what I'm trying to tell her. Zora Baktari has spent at least one day a week for the past year inside Justice Hafen's courtroom on the sixth floor of the Las Vegas Regional Justice Center. After Baktari was taken out of handcuffs, a brief recess was held and the case continued. Zora Baktari has now spoken out about what happened, saying she was given no opportunity to state her case and the judge shut her down. Baktari is Indian, the judge is white. Dr. Christina Greer, let me start with you.
3: Well, unfortunately, this isn't the first case in the country where we've seen an older white judge and a woman of color who is a legal professional and a lawyer and bar certified uh, come before the bench and really advocate on behalf of poor people. Um, and making sure families aren't ripped apart and men and women aren't unfairly incarcerated, and they themselves have been shackled and uh, put in essentially the timeout box with fellow uh, incarcerated individuals um, by by a judge who deems them to be inappropriate, too mouthy, or too sassy. Um, and I think that this is obviously part of a much larger issue as to how, especially white men, the educated women of color um, as completely out of place. Um, this judge clearly sees this woman of color as more deserving of being in handcuffs than she does advocating on the rights of individuals in this country and citizens. This also speaks to a much larger problem with our criminal justice system. If we have a judge who so easily is ruffled by someone even being uh, having the audacity to think of themselves as somewhat equitable. Um, to him as a legal professional um, and it really goes to show just how deep-seated racism is in so many of these courtrooms where so many people of color have no chance um, not just as defendants but even as lawyers who are going against you know or in front of judges who don't even see them as worthy of being in a courtroom unless they're in handcuffs. Asha Bendeli.
1: This is just another example where we don't even have a right to defend ourselves, to even stand up. It kind of goes back to our first conversation about whose life matters. So when a woman stands up and even wants to do that, she's told you don't even have a right to, say, to, to uh, demand, you know, to defend yourself or defend her clients. It was just outrageous to me. So. Um, and to even question it, and to even question the right, because that's why he got mad at her. She just kept saying, but judge, right? And that even that, she was silenced. So you don't have a voice, you don't have a right to defend yourself, you just have to sit down and take whatever we're going to dish out. You know, whether it's her, or whether it's Sandra Bland saying, why are you arresting me? And she dies for that.
0: I'm struck by specific things, by how profoundly unprofessional it is, by how sexist the behavior is. That so the judge imagines that silencing a public defender doing her job somehow resolves the problem. Um, the fact that there's a history that goes back in the article by the moderate. They spoke about a 2007 incident where um, a young woman of color, also a public defender, went through this same um, experience. And you're seeing, as you said, Christina, older white judges using unacceptable techniques to essentially silence um, women, women of color, who are doing the job of defending those who cannot afford the kind of representation that often sees those who really flout the law in different ways, evading and avoiding either detection or resolution or really suffering any real consequence. So I'm just wondering for you, just in terms of closing comment, what kind of action would we want public defenders to engage in order to confront this? Zora Bakhtari has spoken out. She said that she was essentially silenced and, but went ahead and continued and did her job anyway. Um, how, do we, how do we look at the activism of this? Closing thought.
3: Well, I think, you know, in so many of these types of cases, it can't just be the people who are the victims, Right this needs to be public defenders who aren't just women of color it needs to be men it needs to be white men who are public defenders who see that their colleagues are being treated differently um, than they are in the in the eyes of the court so many of these public defenders in places across the country primarily defend just people of color. Um, you know, I've had students observe these types of courts, and they, they'll tell you it's 80% people of color. And so it can't just be other women of color rallying around their colleague from across the country. It needs to be everyone in that system because they know how messed up the system is. There's also this, you know, very um, – there's, there's an age dynamic to this as well, and so many younger white men use um, public defenders – uh, that position as sort of this quick position after law school, and then they go on to firms and doing other things. So many of them aren't in the position for a very long time. And so when we think about those individuals, there also needs to be some real training when they're on the other side of the, the aisle um, to really see the injustices that are going on in their own courtroom. Um, not just outside to to bring in particular individuals; those are injustices and these uh, systemic racist practices that have created these institutions in the first place. But to really look around and see how their colleagues are being treated as well, they need to be the ones to speak up. It can't always just be you know the same group of people who are subject to this type of behavior.
2: Light. We're more concerned with being called racist than we actually are with racism. I've heard that silence is an action, and God knows that I've been passive. What if I actually read an article, actually had a dialogue, actually looked at myself, actually got involved? If I'm aware of my privilege and do nothing at all? I don't know. Hip hop has always been political, yes. It's the reason why this music connects. So, what the Tap into my voice if I stay silent when black people are dying and I'm trying to be politically correct? I can book a whole tour, sell out the tickets, rap entrepreneur, build his own business. If I'm only in this for my own self-interest, not the culture that gave me a voice to begin with, then this isn't authentic, it is just a gimmick. The DIY underdog, so independent, but the one thing the American dream fails to mention is I was many steps ahead to begin with. My skin matches the hero, likeness the image America feels safe with my music and their systems In a suit of me perfect, the role I fulfilled it And if I'm the hero, you know who gets cast as the villain White supremacy isn't just a white dude in Idaho White supremacy protects the privilege I hold White supremacy is the soil, the foundation, the cement And the flag that flies outside of my home White supremacy is our country's lineage Designed for us to be indifferent My success is the product of the same system that let off Darren Wilson. Guilty. We want to dress like, walk like, talk like, dance like. Yeah, we just stand by. We take all we want from black culture. But will we show up for black lives? We want to dress like, walk like, talk like, dance like. Yeah, we just stand by. We take all we want from black culture. But will we show up for black lives?
4: Black Lives Matter, to use an analogy, is like if, if there was a subdivision and a house was on fire, the fire department wouldn't show up and start putting water on all the houses because all houses matter. They would show up and they would turn their water on the house that was burning because that's the house that needs to help the most.
3: My generation's taking on the torch of a very age-old fight for black liberation, but also liberation for everyone. Injustice anywhere is still injustice everywhere.
0: The best thing white people can do is talk to each other. Having those very difficult, very painful conversations with your parents, with your family members. I think one of the critical
4: questions for white people in this society is what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to sacrifice to create a more just society?
2: Your silence is a luxury Hip-hop is not a luxury Your silence is a luxury Hip-hop is not a luxury
0: your hour. Thank you to Asha Bandele and Dr. Christina Greer. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to The Spin production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Amar.
1: This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.